the story of Jesus' birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection is one of the best one of the best known stories in history. It seems unlikely that anyone in here today will hear about these things for the very first time. While the story is well known, it is not well believed. Doubts about the veracity of the, the resurrection and the, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus have, have existed since the days of the apostles. Therefore, it's likely some in here have doubts. They doubt Jesus died for our sins. They doubt Jesus rose from the dead. Now, there have been times where disciples of Jesus have shamed people who have expressed doubts about Jesus. Now, this, I believe, is wrong because people often have legitimate doubts. It's not rebellion. It's not rejection. They just don't understand some things. And when doubts are shamed, they can become full-blown unbelief or even bitter anger. Rather than being shamed for their doubts, people should be encouraged to be honest about their doubts. Because if if God's word is true, if Jesus really did live, die and rise again, as God's word says he did, then it can handle investigation. The truth need never fear being investigated. Only lies do. That being said, just because you have doubts and just because you should be honest about your doubts, that doesn't mean your doubts are true. In all of our questioning about faith, we should question our doubts. And one of the questions we should ask about our doubts is, why do we have them? Why do I doubt? Sometimes our doubts are legitimate. Sometimes we truly cannot reconcile what God's word says to be true With the way we understand the world to work. But this isn't always the case. Jesus said people sometimes reject him because they love darkness more than the light. Now there are two primary reasons people love darkness more than the light. Some love their sin more than they love Jesus. For these people, whether Jesus is true or not is secondary to the pleasure they receive from their sin or the identity they have created from their sin. The pleasure they receive, the identity they've created, that is primary. And and anything that would threaten the pleasure or the identity they've created through their sin is going to be rejected out of hand. Anything like Jesus, for example. Their doubts flow from love of sin. Others choose self-sufficiency over salvation. Self-sufficiency, I believe, works its way out in two ways. First, there is just the very notion that they need to be saved from something and cannot save themselves, assaults their pride in a way they cannot accept. If there's something wrong in their life, and it's a big if, then there is no real way they can't fix it themselves. They'll take care of it. They'll square it away. They'll make it right. And anything that threatens their self-sufficiency, anything like Jesus, for example, is dismissed out of hand. Their doubts flow from self-sufficient pride. The other way self-sufficiency works its way out in someone's life is what I would call self-determination. Those who choose self-determination will determine for themselves what is right. 
They do not need anyone or anything to tell them what is right, what is wrong, how to live, what to do, what to resist, what to embrace in their life. And, and anyone who wants to tell them how they ought to live their lives, someone like Jesus, for example, is rejected and dismissed out of hand. Their unbelief, their doubts flow from self-sufficient pride. Now, there are likely many areas where we may wrestle with doubts. Things like creation, the inspiration, authority and reliability of God's word, sexuality, morality and the church, just to name a few. And there are good answers associated with all of those questions and all of those doubts. We are not the first generation of people to experience doubts about these things. But we aren't going to discuss any of those things today. They are real issues. They are important issues. There are answers to those issues. But none of them are the main issue. The main issue is Jesus. Who is he? What did he do? Why is he important? What will you do with Jesus? So the question, if you have doubts today, the question I want you to think about is this. Why do I doubt Jesus? Why do I doubt Jesus lived and died for my sins and rose again, as God's word said? What hinders you from fully surrendering your life to Jesus? Now, if you're an honest doubter, right? And by an honest doubter, I mean one that truly has questions. It's not I've got my sin and nothing's going against that. I've got my self-sufficiency and my self-determinations. Nothing's going against that. Those people are not honest doubters. They've already determined what they believe and nothing is really going to change that. But for someone who's an honest doubter, truly has questions, truly wants to know. I want you to ask yourself, what if Jesus is true? I want you to ask yourself, what would would I do if I knew Jesus was true? And I ask you to ask yourself this question because of what Jesus said. Jesus said, my teaching is not my own, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know about the teaching, whether it is of God or I'm speaking from myself. Now, what Jesus says is anyone can know whether or not he's true. There is a condition. We must be willing to embrace him as true. And live in light of this truth. You must be the kind of person who would say, I don't really believe in Jesus. But if I knew Jesus was true, I would believe in Jesus. And then I would live for Jesus. Does this describe you in your doubts? If you knew Jesus was real. If you knew he really died for your sins, if you knew he really rose from the dead, would you surrender your life to Jesus and began to live for him? Jesus said, if that's your attitude, as you come to his word, you will be able to know the truth. We're going to take a few minutes and pray and ask God to fulfill this promise. To cause doubters to know the truth about Jesus. And I'm going to pray. But I'm going to ask you if you're a doubter. I'm going to ask you to pray a prayer as well. 
even if you have very real doubts, even if you have real issues and real concerns, I I want you to pray something like this. Oh, God, show me whether Jesus is your son or not. And if you show me he is, I promise to surrender to him as my savior and Lord and then confess him as such before the world. Now, I want you to really pray this, not because you have faith and not because you believe. But as an expression of your openness to the truth, whatever that truth may be. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for the opportunity we have today. Father, I pray for those here today that may have real and legitimate doubts. I pray today, Father, that as we look at your word, you would show them Jesus is real. You would show them your word is living and active. You would begin to prick their hearts and prick their conscience with the the good news of great joy that a Savior has come. Father, that your work in their lives would be unmistakable, undeniable. You had answered this prayer. You had answered their prayer. And you were showing them Jesus was real and Jesus was true. Father, I do pray that they would then surrender to Jesus. They would believe in Jesus and they would begin to live for Jesus. But Father, if they don't, I pray that your work in their life would be so real, so powerful, that they would have to say with with an honesty, I'm rejecting the God who answered my prayer. They would know, even if they never admitted it to anyone but themselves, they would have to know. They were rejecting the God who was at work in their heart, revealing his son to them. We pray Holy Spirit would come. That he would empower my preaching. It would not be with the enticing words of man's wisdom, but it would be in demonstration of your spirit and your power. So people's faith would not stand in any eloquence I may have, any cleverness I may have, but in your power and in your truth alone. We ask this in the mighty name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Title of the message today is Why Jesus? The story of the death and resurrection of Jesus is the crux of the issue about Jesus. Because while everyone dies, Jesus' death was unique in that he rose from the dead. And that uniqueness is what reveals the significance of Jesus. I'm going to read a lengthy passage, but we're only actually going to look at a few verses, but we need to get the whole context. So Mark 15, verse 1. I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's word when you find that. Should be on page 777 in your pew Bibles. I'm going to read the first 39 verses. Early in the morning, the chief priest with the elders and scribes and the entire council immediately held a consultation, and they bound Jesus and led him away and turned him over to Pilate. Pilate questioned him, So you are the king of the Jews. And he answered him, It is as you say. And the chief priest started accusing him of many things, but Pilate questioned him again, Do you offer nothing in answer? See how many charges they are bringing against you. But Jesus said nothing further in answer, so Pilate was amazed. Now at the Passover feast, he used to release to them, any one prisoner whom they requested. And the one named Barabbas, who had been imprisoned with the rebels who committed murder in the revolt. And the crowd went up and began asking Pilate to do for them as he had been accustomed to do. 
Pilate answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware the chief priest had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them and instead. And responding again, Pilate said then, Then what do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, Crucify him! But Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! Intent on satisfying the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. Now the soldiers took him away into the palace, that is, to the praetorium. And they called together the whole Roman cohort. And they dressed him in purple. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began saluting him, Hail, King of the Jews! They repeatedly beat his head with a reed and spit on him. And kneeling, they bowed before him. And after they had mocked him, they took the purple cloak off of him and put his own garments on him and led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Now they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of the skull. And they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, dividing up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man would take. Now it was the third hour when they crucified him and the inscription of the charge against him read the king of the Jews. And they crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, shaking their heads, saying, ha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself by coming down from the cross. In the same way, same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others, cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the king of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. Then about the sixth hour came darkness, fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when the bystanders heard him, they began saying, look, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink, saying, let us see if Elijah comes to take him down. But Jesus let out a loud cry and died. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw that he died in this way, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your word. Let it be living and active in our hearts. Let it deal with us as we need to be dealt with today. Encourage us, strengthen us, convict us, challenge us. But in all things, change us. We do not want to gather today. And it be another day. We want to gather to meet with you to study your word. And to be changed because of your work in our lives. And the encounter we've had with you today. Fill me with your spirit. Give me clarity of thought. Open our eyes. Have your way in all of our hearts. We ask in Jesus name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Now all of this takes place around the time. That the Old Testament would call the, the day of atonement. The high priest on the Day of Atonement would offer two goats to God. 
One goat was taken outside the city. And once it had been taken outside the city, the, the high priest would lay his hands on the goat. He would confess the sins of the nation over the goat. And then it would be led out into the wilderness. Confessing the sins of the people onto the goat symbolically imputed the sins onto the goat. And then it was taken away, taking the sins of the people with him. The other goat, though, it was killed. It, its blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat in the most holy place in the temple. Now, both of this, the goat taken away, the goat sacrificed, was all done because of the sins of the people of Israel. And these actions, particularly the, the sacrificing of the goat, taught the people three truths. It taught them sin was serious. You can imagine watching as the goat is taken, its throat is cut, its blood is collected in a bowl. It's then gutted and then it's burned with fire. This was a graphic demonstration of the seriousness of sin. As they watched this happen, they began to, to realize sin wasn't a minor thing. Sin wasn't something to be trifled with. Sin wasn't okay. Sin was destructive. It also taught them sin had consequences. The animal died because of sin. But not just some general idea of sin. The animal didn't die because there was sin out there somewhere. The animal didn't die because some people in the world did bad things. If I was a Jewish man at that time watching this happen, I would know that animal being slaughtered was my fault. My sin had killed that goat. And it also taught them sin required a sacrifice. The act of bleeding and killing and gutting the animal, it wasn't once and done. It was done year after year. Year after year, an animal sacrifice had to be made because of their sins. This was the only way they could have them taken away. They couldn't just turn over a new leaf after they had sinned. It was good if they did, but something still had to die. They couldn't make personal moral reforms. It was good if they did, but something still had to die. They couldn't just become more religious. Maybe it was good if they did, but something still had to die. Nothing they did could make up for their sin. Something had to die, and their sin was the cause. And while this act was performed year after year after year, there was a problem. These sacrifices never really paid the penalty for the sins of the people. Hebrews 10.4 tells us, that an animal cannot pay the debt human sin earns. What the yearly sacrifice did was remind them of their sin, of its consequences, and to the point a better sacrifice was needed to pay the debt their sin had earned. There was a better sacrifice. His name is Jesus. Jesus came to be the one perfect sacrifice to pay the penalty for the sins of humanity. This is why John the Baptist called Jesus the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Jesus on the cross absorbed all of God's wrath against all of our sin until he cried out, it is finished. 
This is what Jesus accomplished with his death in verse 37. But Jesus let out a loud cry and died. Everything leading up to this point was building to him paying the penalty for our sins. Everything that had happened up to this point was him in kind of, in some ways, almost, you could say, ingesting our sin. Feeling the effects and the weight of our sin. And then feeling the penalty of our sins. You, you could say Jesus endured hell on the cross in our place. Through his death, Jesus did something no animal sacrifice could do. Jesus, through his death, did something no other sacrifice could do. Jesus fulfilled what the Old Testament sacrifices symbolized. Jesus' death teaches us three things. It teaches us our sin is serious. We don't have time today, but if we were to go into deep detail about what it means that he was flogged and beaten and crucified and how long he hung, the pain, the suffering he endured, what we would see is everything there is graphically telling us the seriousness of our sin. It is telling us sin isn't a minor thing. Sin isn't something to be trifled with. Sin is destructive. But sin is also, not only is our sin serious, our sin has consequences. Jesus died because of sin. But like the animals in the Old Testament, Jesus didn't die because of some idea of sin out there somewhere. Jesus didn't die on the cross for sin because there are people somewhere who do bad things. Jesus died for your sin and my sin. As we look at the cross and as we read what Jesus endured here, we should know it was our fault. My sin killed Jesus. Your sin killed Jesus. Sin is serious. Sin has consequences. And also we learn that sacrifice has been made. For our sins. The sacrifice of Jesus in our place is good for all people in all places and all times. It was good for the centurion who cried out, truly, this was the son of God. It was good for the people on the day of Pentecost. And it's good for us in our day as well. Jesus's death on the cross for our sins is just as effective today as it was on the day he died. Jesus's death on the cross is a one and done. He will never die on a cross for sin again. It was done one time for all time. And the cross will never lose its power. The sacrifice will never be anything more required than what Jesus has already done. This is the only sacrifice God will ever ask for in payment for our sins. But it's also the only sacrifice God will ever accept as payment for our sins. What Jesus did for us on the cross erased the debt we've incurred through our sin. It was erased so completely that God will never think on them again, Hebrews 8.12. The debt was so completely paid for that we are free, forever free, from condemnation from sin through what Jesus Christ has done, Romans 8.1. Now, while this is good news, this is the best news, there are implications of what Jesus has done that some may see as not good news. Since Jesus 
His death in our place is the only sacrifice God will accept as payment for our sins. Then we can't just turn over a new leaf. Maybe it would be good if we did. But that's not enough. We must embrace Jesus. Since Jesus' sacrifice is the only sacrifice God will accept, we can't just make moral reforms. Maybe we need to. Maybe that would be a good idea as well. But it's not enough. We must embrace Jesus. We can't just try harder to be good. Again, maybe we should. But it's not enough. We must embrace Jesus. We can't even be more religious. Determine, I'm going to go to church more often, pray more often, give more often. It's probably good if we do those things. But none of that's enough. We must embrace Jesus. So why Jesus? Because on the cross, Jesus died for our sins. And in doing so, he did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He made it possible for our sin debt to be completely removed. But, as the commercial says, wait, there's more. Jesus didn't just remove our sin debt. He gave us access to God. In the Old Testament, there were basically two places where people could go to worship God. One was the tabernacle built during the time of Moses. The other was the temple originally built during the time of Solomon. Both of these places to worship were divided into three areas. There was what we might call a common area where the sacrifices were made. And any uh, male Israelite could enter the common area. Then there was, beyond that, there was a place called the holy place. And inside the holy place was the altar of incense, the table of showbread, and the priests of God were the only ones allowed to enter the holy place and only during the course of their service. But beyond the holy place... There was the most holy place or the holiest of all, depending on what translation you have. Separating the most holy place from the holy place was a an elaborate, thick veil. The most holy place was called the most holy place because that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. The Ark represented the very presence of God. And the high priest was the only person in the entire nation who could go through the veil And into the presence of God to the ark. And even he could only go once a year. And only after he had made a sacrifice for his own sins. And then he brought in a sin for the people. That veil was a constant reminder that humans were separated from God. That sinful humans could not go into the presence of a holy God. But notice what happens. Verse 37, Jesus lets out a loud cry and dies. Verse 38, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, the reason it specifically mentions it was done from top to bottom is to show God had done it. Right. This isn't like what an amazing coincidence. Jesus dies and the veil happens to to rip apart on that time. Wow. Amazing. It's not that. This is Jesus has died. He has paid the penalty for sins. And now he has made possible something that has not been possible before. People, all people can enter into God's presence. And God showing that this is what's done. He rends the temple. Or he rends the curtain in two from top to bottom. And then because of what Jesus has done. Because the curtain has been torn. We're told. Therefore brothers and sisters. Since we have confidence to enter the holy place. By the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. 
to the original readers of Hebrews, the thought of being able to go through the veil into the, the holy place, the most holy place, right into the presence of God, it would have been unthinkable. It would have been incomprehensible. They can't imagine. You think about it. Thousands of years, only one person at a time had ever been able to go in there. The high priest who served for years on end. The vast majority of Israel had never seen the ark. They had never been in the presence of God in this way. And now they're being told the temple, the veil has been torn and everyone has access to go into the very presence of God. It would have been mind blowing to them. But this is what Jesus, what God's word is telling us. Jesus made it possible through his death for us to go to God, for us to have a legitimate relationship with God. Jesus tore the curtain separating humans from God so that we can go right into where God is and we can experience God's presence Not only can we experience God's presence, other parts in Hebrews 10 talk about that we go into his presence with boldness. Think about that. Now, the high priest did not go into the tabernacle, into the most holy place with boldness. He went in with fear and trembling. Because if he did not go in in the right way at the right time with the right sacrifices, the right intentions, the right attitude, God would kill him. And so they always were afraid. They were always terrified as they went in. But we don't have to be afraid. We can go into the presence of God without fear, without feelings of inferiority. We don't go into the presence of God as trembling slaves of a harsh master who is looking for a reason to smite us. We don't hesitate to go to God despite our past failures. Blood of Jesus has cleansed us from those things. But not only do we not hesitate to go in because of our past failures, we don't even have to let our our present failures hinder us from going into the presence of God. You know, for many of us, we have a a performance-based mentality when it comes to God. We think, I blew it in a big way, or I blew it in a small way, but, but I blew it. Therefore, before I can go back into God's presence and begin to to experience God, I I have to show him I'm serious. I have to I have to do penance. I I have to to do these things to show God I'm serious about living for him this time. But that's not in the Bible. It's not what God's word says. God's word tells us that when we sin, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. When we sin. We don't have a heavenly father who's like, square yourself away, prove to me you're doing right, then you can come back. When we sin, we have a heavenly father who says, you blew it, come back. Come back to me, don't go any further away. Come back now, get up, come back to me now. Anytime we want to go to God, we can because of what Jesus has done. Anytime we need God's help, we're invited to cast our cares upon him. He cares for us. We're invited to go to the go boldly before the throne of grace where we are promised we will find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. As for those who repent of their sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
The holy place, the most holy place is open to us 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Anytime we need to be with God, we can be with God. Anytime we want to talk to God, we can talk to God. Anytime we need to lay a care at his feet, we can go lay a care at his feet. No matter where we are, no matter what time it is, no matter what we have done. Because of Jesus, we have constant access to God. Why Jesus? Because on the cross, Jesus died for our sin and has given us access to God. Jesus' death paid the penalty for, for your sin, for my sin. And in doing so, he opened up a pathway for anyone to legitimately know God, to be born again, to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. This isn't something you can do on your own. It's not something I can do on my own. You, you can't fix yourself. You can't take your sin away. You can't turn over a new leaf. You can't give yourself access to God. None of this is found anywhere except through faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done. And it's available for anyone, anywhere, anytime. We see an immediate example of this in verse 39. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw that Jesus died in this way, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Seeing how Jesus died, seeing what happened when Jesus died, the Roman centurion confessed Jesus as a son of God. Here is a, a pagan. He's not just a, a moral person. He is actively worshiper of a Greek or a Roman God. He's not even really a moral person. Roman centurions weren't known for being moral people. Being there, he is likely one of the ones who gambled for Jesus' clothing. He is likely one of the ones who nailed Jesus to the cross. It's even possible. He's one of the ones who slapped and spat on Jesus earlier in the text. And yet, when Jesus dies, his heart is broken. He knows what's happened was significant. And he cries out to God. And he calls Jesus the Son of God and Church tradition teaches us that this man went on to become a devoted disciple of Christ. I think it's an amazing thing if Jesus, if his shed blood can forgive this man's sin. If what Jesus did can open up a way for this man to come to him. Surely he can do the same for us. Nothing we have done is too great to keep us from Jesus. Nothing we have done is too great to keep us from being able to have access to God through Jesus. The blood of Christ, the sacrifice of Jesus is sufficient for all of the sins of our past, all of the sins of our present, all of the sins of our future. And God then is opening and welcoming and saying, come to me. At this point, we, we could say, well, how would you know that, though? I mean, how can you be sure Jesus really died for my sin? How can we be sure Jesus really gives us access to God? I mean, after all, the Romans crucified thousands of people during the time that they ruled the world. I mean, they, they crucified at least two other people on the day they crucified Jesus. What, what makes his death more significant than theirs? Well, look at chapter 16, and verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so they might come and anoint Jesus. And very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. They were saying to one another, who will roll the stone away 
And looking up, they noticed the stone had been rolled away, and it was extremely large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. But he said to them, Do not be amazed. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See, here is the place where they laid him. We can be certain Jesus died for our sins and has given us access to God and can do for us what he did for the Roman centurion because Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus' resurrection is the greatest proof that he died for our sin and not as a martyr for the cause. In fact, Jesus' death would have no significance whatsoever if it wasn't for his resurrection. His resurrection powerfully declares that Jesus is the Son of God who died for the sins of the world, that he alone secures salvation, that he alone can give us access to God. Now, I focused exclusively on Jesus in this because Jesus is the key to everything. To paraphrase C.S. Lewis, If Jesus is not who God's word says he is, if Jesus did not do what God's word says he did, then Jesus is of no importance whatsoever. However, if Jesus is who God's word says he is, and if he did what God's word says he did, then Jesus is of ultimate importance. The only thing Jesus cannot be is moderately important. What we have read about Jesus, what God's word claims about Jesus, it demands a response from us. And we can respond with unbelief and determining that Jesus is of no importance whatsoever. Or we can respond with belief, recognizing Jesus as being ultimately important. There is no third option. There is nothing else. We either believe and embrace or we doubt and we reject. Those are the only options available to us. If he is who he says he is, he cannot be moderately important. He is ultimately important. Now, if you have not personally responded to Jesus by believing him, Embracing him as being ultimately important. And I urge you to do this today. I'm going to give an, we're going to give an opportunity to respond. And when I urge you to, to believe Jesus and embrace him as ultimately important, I want to be clear. I'm not urging you to try harder. I'm not urging you to be more moral. I'm not urging you to turn over a new leaf. I'm not even urging you to be more religious. When I urge you to believe Jesus and embrace Jesus as ultimately important, I am urging you to turn to Jesus, believing he died on the cross for your sin. Believing that he legitimately rose from the dead on the third day. You must believe on Jesus to receive everything Jesus died to make possible. Now, believing Jesus is more than believing there's a God out there somewhere. Lots of people who believe in God are going to miss out on the salvation Jesus provided. Believing in Jesus and believing in God are not the same thing. Believing in Jesus is even more than believing that there was a guy named Jesus who existed. Right? Being able to, to give doctrinal truths about who Jesus is, is not legitimate faith. Believing Jesus 
It involves the whole of our being, the the heart, the mind and the will. Believing in Jesus starts in the mind. We hear what Jesus did for us. That he died because our sin is serious. Jesus died as part of the consequences of our sin. And Jesus died in our place. We believe that in our minds. But that's not enough. Then belief goes from the mind to the heart. And the heart says, I I want what Jesus is offering. I want my sins to be forgiven. I want to have access to God. I want to know the one who died for me. But the will. The will makes the final and lasting decision. Your will. It is possible for any of us to accept the truth in our minds. To want what Jesus offered in our hearts. But to refuse to reach out and take hold of Jesus with our will. To take hold of what Jesus is offering requires us to turn to Jesus And turning to Jesus involves turning from sin. I cannot pursue Jesus and my sin at the same time. I must forsake one to go after the other. To reach out and take hold of what Jesus offers requires us to to let go of self-sufficiency. I can't reach out and take hold of, of Jesus and at the same time believe I can save myself. I have to to let go of of any belief that I can fix it, that I can do it, that there's any good deed I have done or will do that will make my salvation possible. Letting go of self-sufficiency requires to accept Jesus' death as the only basis for our acceptance with God. This is a humbling thing, and this is where so many, especially as Americans, where we stumble. We like to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We like to, I can take it, I can fix it, I can do it. And you can't. And if you're not willing to let go of that and embrace Jesus alone, you will miss everything Jesus offers. Letting go of self-sufficiency requires to let go of self-determination. We have to receive Jesus not only as Savior who forgives our sin, but as Lord who determines the course of our lives. If He is who He says He is, He is of ultimate importance. He is the one who determines what we do and how we do it, what we believe and how we believe it. We cannot say, I am going to be self-determined and do what I want, but I want some of what Jesus. We, we take it all or we take nothing. There's, there's no in-between. This is a decision that that you must intentionally make. No one can make it for you. I I was raised in a Christian home. My parents pleaded with me to come to Jesus at a young age. My granny shared the gospel with me, urged me to receive Jesus. But despite the fact they wanted me to be saved, they couldn't make this decision for me. There came a day where I had to I knew what I believed. I knew it was true. I wanted what he offered. But I had other things I wanted to do. I wasn't willing to let go of my self-determination and my sin. And there came a day where I had to let it go from my mind to my heart to my will. 
And while my parents had prayed for me to make that decision, my parents could not make that decision for me. No one can make that decision for you. You must make it for yourself. So today I am pleading with you. Don't let what you don't understand about life, God's word, keep you from what you do understand about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Don't let the passing pleasures of sin keep you from the unsearchable riches of Christ. Don't let your self-sufficiency and your self-determination keep you from everything Jesus has for you. Flee to Jesus and be saved. Today he stands, arms outstretched, saying, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Let's bow our heads and stand. If you need the salvation Jesus offers and you're ready to surrender to him as Savior and Lord, I'm going to ask you to reach your hand in the air as a way of taking hold of him and his salvation. We're going to take a few minutes and we're going to pray right now. We're going to open the altars. If you want to come forward and pray, come forward and pray. You're open for any reason. You just need rest for your soul and you're a disciple of Jesus. You come. You have a loved one that doesn't know Jesus and you want to cry out on their behalf. You come. But if you need what Jesus offers and you're ready to surrender your life to him, you come and you cry out to Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. You're great and glorious. You're wonderful and worthy. We thank you for Jesus and what he's accomplished in our behalf. Father God, search our hearts right now. Help us all, Lord, to see where we need to, to respond to you, to what you want us to do. If there's any here today, Lord, that have not turned to Christ, I pray that your spirit would begin to press upon them. Let them not get away from it, Lord. I know the world, the flesh, and the devil is telling them to turn away, reject it. It's nonsense and nothing. But don't let them believe it. Continue to press upon them. Continue to call them. Let them see Jesus continually calling to come and lay their burdens down to find rest for their souls. Have your way in all of our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.